I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, my name is Ash Sarker and welcome to this ho- this talk hosted in the virtual LRB bookshop, which is less a bookshop at the moment and more of a state of mind that you can't escape. Um, it's like Inception, where you're not really sure if you ever made it out of the dream. Um, anyway, I am very excited to introduce Owen Hatherley, who tonight will be talking to us about his new book, Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London. Owen, for those who wish to be reminded of his CV, is culture editor at Tribune. He's got a book output, which means that legally you are allowed to describe him as a prolific author. (laughs) I've always wondered, like, what the line is for that. But rest assured, Owen is well over it. Um, And because this is an online event, uh, I don't have to deal with, like, the social consequences of being duper duper cringe. I don't have to deal with that in person, though it's Kind of safe for me to confess that Owen's writing on architecture and political and social history was super influential for me personally. Um, and I remember reading a new kind of bleak when I was at uni and immediately decided that my next piece of coursework had to be about like the impact of regeneration on representation of uh, London council housing and film. And my tutor like read the coursework and was like, I see you've been reading Owen Hatherley. <laughs> 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 busted um so yeah i i stan owen i stan owen with the kind of tenacity usually reserved for korean boy bands so um owen thank you for dropping the restraining order and <laughs> joining us all tonight i couldn't be more flattered <laughs> he actually paid me to say all this stuff um so just a, a bit of housekeeping how tonight is going to go is that first i'm going to ask owen some questions And while I do that, you lot in the audience should be filling up the event chat uh, with your cues that you would like some A's to. So just keep putting questions in there. They could be offensive, prurient, uncomfortably personal, um, but ideally about the book and its themes. Um, So I will uh, try and leave as much time for questions as I possibly can. The event will last all in all about an hour. I was definitely joking about the uncomfortably personal questions. Uh, I don't know, unless they're really good, maybe I'll answer one of them. Uh, or Owen will answer one of them. Um, okay, so let's, I, I guess we should kick off with uh, talking about uh, the book, Red Metropolis. Um, and I guess I should say that look, I'm not an unbiased interlocutor because the way I feel about London is the way I feel about my family, which is I can slag it off. And <laughs> if anyone else slags off London, I'm just ready to throw punches so really my my first question for you Owen is about there is this tendency in left-wing circles to extrapolate from the entrenched regional inequalities in this country a very binary moral positioning of London is elitist and it's decadent and fundamentally it is devoid of working class authenticity 
and the North is like the heartland of all socialist consciousness ever. And so I was kind of wondering when I was reading this book, is it in some way a rebuke to that tendency amongst the left? Um, yes. Um, I suppose there's all sorts of things that kind of got, got, got sort of got to me about that. I think sort of historically it's sort of weird and, and, and dubious. Like this is kind of, you know, how do you explain this? When it's the kind of, like, oh, it's the capital city and that's where all the wealth is. And so therefore it must be right wing and reactionary. And I sort of think, have you heard of a thing called the Paris Commune? Um, but sort of as well as that, it's just historically not true. Um, so as well as a kind of like irritation at the fact that the most kind of reliably left voting part of the country in the last few years is considered to be this kind of outpost of sort of the metropolitan elite. Um, also, just like in terms of British history for the last 150 years, it's just not true. Um, you know, I'm sat here in, you know, in the uh, London Borough of Southwark in a parliamentary seat which last voted Tory in 1931. Um, most of inner London could tell exactly the same story. Most of um, places that weren't part of the old LCC, like West Ham and Tottenham, can tell exactly the same story. Like these places haven't been Tory really since universal suffrage was brought in. Um, so the kind of idea that, like, you know, that, that there's this kind of monolithic block called the North, which usually seems to include the Midlands, which is puzzling. Um, and then there's this kind of, you know, that Labour doing very well in London is something that needs to be explained rather than something that always happens and is as obvious as uh, Labour doing very well in, say, Liverpool or Newcastle. Um, probably much more obvious historically than Liverpool, but that's another another story altogether. So there was a kind of historical irritation, but also just an irritation at, at the way that certain events in the last five years have just had no real influence on the way that British politics and British social life is discussed. Um, the one of these that's obviously the most obvious is Grenfell. Mm. Um, you know, that, that there was, um, I remember a few days after the 2017 election, there was, you know, this kind of like, oh, Kensington went Labour, so therefore this is the metropolitan elite. And then a few days later, you know, 72 people die in a fire in a tower block in, Kensington, in, in North Kensington. Um, and presumably this is the north, this, this is the kind of, you know, the, the metropolitan elite that were, that were immolated. And I kind of thought when that happened, you know, it's just huge kind of Hillsborough-like disaster is going to stop people reproducing these stereotypes about Londoners, that they're all kind of minted and all sit on property wealth and what have you. And it didn't. It made absolutely no difference. And in fact, the 2019 election means that they're coming back even more and we have to put up with even more of this crap. So, uh, yes, is the answer to that question. I mean, like, I do want to talk specifically about Grenfell because the inquiry is is still ongoing. And what's coming out of it is that people did know that the cladding was flammable. Key documentation is just very conveniently going missing or the files were accidentally deleted or whatever. And and still with all of this going on, Kensington is still synonymous within the popular imagination is like very chichi, very like bourgeois. It's kind of aristocratic. There are the international elites, even though schools of working class people died fundamentally because nobody was willing to listen when they said that the place where they lived was unsafe. And in the book, one of the things that you point out is that this is totally inseparable from questions of local governance. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously Kensington and Chelsea are a spectacular example of this and that at the same time that they were forcing the price for the renovation of that tower down as low as possible, they were also handing out uh, a counter-tax rebate to their residents. And in the south of the borough and in parts of the north of the borough as well, that includes some of the richest people on earth. And they were being given counter-tax rebates at the same time they were thinking, oh, there's no way we could possibly, you know, afford this extra bit of money so that this thing isn't clad in napalm so it was just you know that these these are sort of seen as separate phenomena and i think the problem with that's that's the main problem is that they're not separate they, they're completely the same thing and the fact that london does have you know it does play home to a large proportion of the super rich is one of the reasons why i think life is kind of particularly precarious and particularly dangerous for working class people in london well, it's easier to mistreat working class people when you say the place where they live is full of elites anyway, and those elites don't know nothing about nothing. And if they make any claim to working class proximity, it's the wrong kind. It's the brown stabby kind rather than the yeah. whip it and flat cap kind. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been going on for a while. I mean, one of the things I don't mention in the book was uh, a whole debate about the East End that was going on about 12 years ago with various kind of sociologists attached to various think tanks kind of going, oh, it's not what it used to be. Um, counter housing goes to brown people now. This betrays the, 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 the settlement after the Second World War where, you know, counter housing would only be given to you if you'd had a leg blown off or whatever the hell. And it was just, uh, you know, there isn't, there was a sort of element of truth in this about the way that people kind of received the welfare state and the way that they, they, they perceived it. But, Piled on that, it's just an enormous quantity of nonsense. But I mean, I, I think like we're talking about the way in which politics is fought on a cultural terrain. That cultural terrain is a reflection of, of, a, of a material one, but not reducible to it. And I would say one of the really important things to bear in mind is the power of negative solidarity. So it's a kind of emotional impulse of I'm not going to vote for things to be better for everyone because everyone includes people who I deem to be undeserving. Yeah, of course. And that's, you know, a lot of the coalition that the Tories have successfully assembled comes from comes from that particular impulse um, and comes from giving people a small thing that they can then be terrified that they might lose. And that's where the kind of the, the, the you know, the importance of home ownership, I think, comes into all of them. Mm. At the lowest levels of home ownership in the country by far are in Inderlandum. And actually some of the highest are in the so-called Red Wall, which didn't exist until last December. Um, so I think it's hard not to see that as, as, as part of what's going on, but you know, what would I know? I live in, I live in London. You're a effet metropolitan elite. I'm sorry, me and you both. I'm certainly a fat, but. <laughs> I mean, in the book, there are just so many bits of London history that I had no idea about. One of the things that just like leapt out to me was this account of, you know, I think 30 Labour councillors in Poplar doing jail time because they wanted to fund quite an ambitious welfare programme by cutting their payments to the London County Council. And I didn't know this, that the the slogan better to break the law than break the poor came from. Um, and that was obviously used but in the 1980s, you know, with the militant run council in Liverpool. And so my question to you is why hasn't this radical history of London been a big part of how its identity is perceived because Liverpool 
you know, no one can impugn Liverpool socialist credentials, you know. Which is funny because without wanting to be rude to, to, to Liverpool, because I think Liverpool is a wonderful city with a wonderful political history. Um, Liverpool didn't become a Labour stronghold until the 1980s. Mm. In fact, militant made Liverpool a Labour stronghold. Whereas inner London, you know, zones one to three London, apart from, you know, Belgravia and whatnot, has been a Labour stronghold for 100 years, almost uninterrupted. So, um, you know, it might raise an eyebrow at that. Um, but I think some of these things are remembered. Like there is the mural of the popular of the popular councillors mm. um, somewhere somewhere down a back alley in Bow, as I remember. You know there are things like the mini Lansbury clock. There are kind of you know the memories of Cable Street and so on. There are these kind of little things that are remembered, but there. I think this is actually one of those things of just the vastness of London. It's mm. very different. It's very difficult to kind of come out of a kind of unitary history for a city of nine million people that's about the size of Belgium. You know, it's not really, it, it, it's, it, it, it's inherently tricky. Um, but I think those, I think those histories are actually fairly, fairly known in particular areas, but there's a sort of vested interest, I think, in, you know, uh, sort of downplaying them in favour of others. And I think actually this is a thing which the left is part of a little bit. Like, People on the left kind of love, you know, talking about um, the kind of great defeats, let's say. Yeah. Like, you know, Chartism or the Gordon riots or what have you. And, you know, these kind of moments of like sort of failed insurrections of which London has a few. Um, but actually, to a large degree, the story of municipal socialism in London is a story of success. Mm hmm. Um, of electoral success and social success. It did what it set out to do to a large degree. And that's why it was abolished in 1986. Mm. Um, you know, it literally had to be legislated out of existence. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's part of it as well. I think the kind of absence of that, that, of the GLC is one of the reasons why that's not so well understood. I think the creation of the mayoralty has never filled that gap. I mean, you know, maybe we should go, you know, sort of back to the start. And, you know, could you tell us a bit about the LCC? Because in your words, it's an experiment in socialism from the very start. And in terms of my knowledge of London history, that was brand new information. But then again, anything before 2005 is brand new information for me. Um, but, yeah, if you could talk us through. Um, sure. So. um it's really odd to me that there's not more known about it because there, there are like, as far as I could tell, there are two proper books on the LCC. Like one is a book from 1995 about like the first 15 years of it. And the other is an anthology from the mid eighties. And that's your lot. Whereas if you want to research something like the great dog strike or even Poplar, there'll be dozens and dozens of things. And again, I think this is because they won <laughs> because it was successful and the memory of success has to be repressed at all times. <laughs> um, so. The LCC was set up by an act of parliament in 1889 and encompassed more or less all of London up to that point, except for a big chunk of the East End, um, around particularly around West Ham, Stratford and so on, um, which was very built up at that time, but wasn't in it, I think, largely so that they could continue polluting it, as the LCC had quite strict roles on pollution that um, I think various business interests were quite worried about. Um, so it was supposed to be kind of non-partisan initially, um, and this was basically nonsense from the start. So it ended up being fought out between 
two political forces which kind of stood in for the Liberals and the Tories, but not quite. So you had the progressives on the one hand who ran the council from 1889, from the first elections until 1907. And they were basically made up of the kind of, the kind of left wing of the Liberal Party and the kind of nascent socialist movement. The people that had come from the Social Democratic Federation were kind of vaguely Marxist. Um, the independent Labour hey, Party. Not vague Marxism. Some of us have made very good careers out of vague Marxism. <laughs> Uh, just because I, I sort of imagine there's a kind of like a real Marxist, you know, at the historical materialism conference mm-hmm. is going to suddenly appear and go, I think you'll find that none of these people have read the Grundrisse. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but so, the, the, you know, those people were sort of were sort of around, you know, trade unionists and Marxists and also the Fabian Society were very much part of it, of all of the kind of interesting and dubious things that, that the Fabians got up to. So. Then you had, you know, the kind of opposition to that who initially didn't do terribly well, the uh, ratepayers party or the municipal reformers, as they were variously called, whose entire platform was like, we don't want to spend money on anything, um, which so the, initially. The low tax Chloe of, yeah, you know, years ago. You know, the kind of like local paper letters page of like, why is my council tax going to this park type people? Um, so that entailed among other things a very interventionist attitude towards things like housing the housing of the working classes act was actually introduced partly under the lcc's pressure so the kind of act that introduced kind of mass council housing into british life uh, but pretty most interesting for the for the story i'm trying to tell in the book is the works department mm-hmm. and the works department was um described at the time by the newspapers by the times in particular as communist as a kind of example of communism and was particularly seen, like, they like, particularly associated with the workshops that are set up after the French Revolution of 1848, when kind of these sort of public, public works organizations were set up under, under some nominal workers' control. Um, so the works department built stuff, built housing, built fire stations, built schools, built bridges, built the Blackwall Tunnel. Um, but it did it paying new trade union rates and did it with a degree of popular control and did it, of course, circumventing completely the established building industry, who, of course, are and have always been very close to the Conservative Party. Um, and for this, the LCC were dragged through the courts and after the Tories and their various names um, took over the council in 1907, it was abolished. But there was very much this experiment of trying to kind of do everything in-house and do everything, um, you know, through the council. Um, imagining this kind of future in which, you know, kind of everything in London, from the parks to the water to the trains to the tubes to the housing would be public. And that, you know, for a thing that for the Liberals to be doing at the time was particularly quite odd. And uh, the Liberal Party at national level were quite sceptical about it. Um, so it's a sort of... The, many of the people in it would have considered themselves to be socialist. I'm not entirely sure if Perry Anderson would consider them so, but I, I would. And I, I, listen, this is setting up the Owen Hatherley Perry Anderson beef that I've always wanted. <laughs> like, I have nothing but respect for Peregrine Anderson. Oh, that is absolutely not the kind of thing that you'd hear in World Star Hip Hop. I want a bit more, I want a bit more um, <laughs> antagonism here. 
Um, I mean, so uh, th thinking about about this as an experiment in, in socialism and thinking about it within an imperial context, because obviously at the same time all this is going on, London is the centre of of the imperial core. It really is. There's this one quote uh, from from Will Crooks, I think it is, uh, that you you have in the book, and you say that he later ends up being a social imperialist, but you know, early on when he when he maybe had a little, you know, a little bit of critical faculty left. Um, you know, he said that you talk of a British empire on which the sun never sets, but I was born in a London alley where the sun never rose. And even though his personal political arc ends up somewhere different, it made me think, is there something profoundly anti-colonial in aspects of London identity? And, and if so, where does it come from? I mean, aspects, aspects. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, you know, London at that time was an imperial capital and an imperial kind of, you know, financial and trade centre. Like, you know, it was absolutely the hub of that entire system. Um, and most London workers were working for that system. So I wouldn't want to overstate it. There's definitely, and, you know, the trajectory of these people that came into the LCC in the 1890s, the socialists like, like Will Crooks or John Burns, Ben Tillett, um, the fact that they all went to the right is not accidental. You know, it's kind of it's sort of from the in there from the start. But first, there's sort of two points, really, one about organisation and one about kind of perception of London as a place, I think, at that point. So the London Labour Party's early slogan um, from the 1910s onwards was Home Rule for London. So they considered that, that you know, this is that point happening at the same time as the agitation for home rule in Ireland. Um, and at the same time was obviously then followed by, you know, the Easter Rising and the War of Independence. Um, and obviously lots of the, you know, people involved had Irish ancestry. Um, so it's kind of idea of home rule of London, not necessarily being independent as such, but being a, having, a, having a parliament and completely governing itself. And this kind of goes alongside... Um, this kind of idea that I sort of lost my thread a little bit. So there's a, there's a kind of um, there's a line, I think, from Herbert Morrison about London being treated like a crown colony by the government um, that, that turns up in there. And I think that's partly from the way that actually London at that point still didn't have the powers of Manchester or Glasgow or um, Birmingham in particular. You know, it didn't control its own trams. It didn't control all of its infrastructure. And the government was still quite resistant to that happening, I think, partly because they considered the LCC to be a great political threat. So for them, they would see London as being in some way colonially oppressed by the government in Westminster. And, you know, one can argue about the degree to which that's an, an, an exaggerated way of looking at it. I think that that's certainly arguable. Although it's quite surprising that certain of the figures who later, you know, very much become very imperialist, particularly Morrison later on as a foreign secretary, um, are at this point much more radical and things like, you know, like Morrison was a conscientious objector at the, during the First World War, you know, was, um, said that he couldn't fight because his religion was socialism. Um, you know, that the, there was always a kind of religious exemption, you know, if you could like Quakers and so forth could get out of it. And it was like, well, this is my religion, sir. Um, but there's also a thing about organisation, obviously, that, you know, that London obviously has always been a multicultural city, you know, since the day it was founded by Italians. Um, you know, it's it's just it's just what it is. And you can see in a lot of 
organization and the kind of nascent socialist movement, that's very much part of what's going on. And the kind of heart of it, as I sort of describe it in the book, is Battersea. Mm. Um, and particularly, um, you know, the, the way that the Battersea um, Council, which was run by the progressives at that point, um, was very militantly against the Boer War. And later, a lot of the figures involved in it, such as John Archer, who became the mayor, became the first black mayor of a London borough, um, and his protege, Shapurji Saklavala, um, who was the first communist MP, um, who was elected as a communist MP and served two terms as a communist MP. This gracious me sketch of like Indian is that whenever I look at him, yeah. I go, you know what? It's like, you know, one of the earliest MPs of Khan is both communist and Desi, the way in which it fills me with pride. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have these things which actually later don't really become considered part of the London left until the 70s or 80s are actually happening in the 1910s. Mm. And while the book is quite kind of like ambiguous about Herbert Morrison, I do think that the Labour Party, as he kind of knocked it into shape in the 20s and 30s, lost a lot of that. I mean, there was another aspect of the LCC that you identified that I definitely sort of saw um, as a like residual knee-jerk instinct within the Labour movement today. And it was this connection between housing provision and moral puritanism. So mm-hmm. the uh, LCC estates, you know, you, you say there's like, you know, no pubs, no music halls, no fun, really. And it's about kind of, you, you know, and you can kind of see where it comes from. The labor movement has this relationship to the temperance movement and, you know, all these things about, you know, the condition of the working man must be improved by the denial of, of bodily pleasures, really. And I think that that disciplinarian instinct in the labor movement is here till this day. So, you talk to certain left Labour MPs about decriminalising drugs. Um, you know, the way I say it is that it's not really decriminalising drugs. It's making them legal for everybody because de facto they are legal if you're rich enough or if you're, you're white enough. Um, but the minute you bring this up, it's seen as indulgent, middle class, student stuff, really. And do you think that there's a kind of continuity in that way of thinking? I think there is, but it's... It's a mess. So one of the things that I, that, that I liked a lot in the book when I was researching the book was on Bermondsey Council in the 20s and 30s, which was very much one of the, one of the sort of socialist strongholds at the time, one of the five red boroughs, so-called, um, four of which were in South London. Um, and, um, the, um, and the Alfred Salter, who became the MP, gave a speech, you know, like on election, you know, the day before the election, go like, vote for me and I will never vote for any war credits and I will vote for prohibition. So, you know, there's these two things at once of like, I will completely stand against war and completely stand against, you know, alcohol and mother's ruin. And th- these are kind of part of the same thing. The kind of stuff that like Orwell has a big go at in Road to Wick and Pier of all the vegetarians and sandal wearers and lesbians and whatnot. And that kind of bizarre rant. Actually, the London Labour Party was full of those people. And they stood in, you know, working class areas like Bermondsey and won landslides. Um, but the, there's a kind of, the, the, the sort of early puritanism of the LCC is quite ugly in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There is a real kind of like deserving poor and undeserving poor. The deserving were catered for very well by the LCC. You know, the so-called outcast London at the time were very much not. Um, pretty much the only thing they ever got built for them was a huge DOS house in Deptford, which um, mm. which is still there. Um, so there was really a kind of um, 
And the kind of musical aspect kind of comes from that. And that kind of comes from an alliance, I think, of sort of middle class reformers who consider it all very vulgar and also kind of socially mobile trade unionists for whom this is everything they're trying to get away from. They're trying to get away from, you know, people, you know, being drunk in the pub and, you know, sort of seedy streets of London type stuff and syphilis. And, you know, this is their kind of like thing that they're rising out of in order to be in this kind of like garden city world that they imagine and that they try mm -hmm. to make people places like Bermondsey into. Um, and actually, that's the funny thing is that's actually quite close to stuff that you kind of Luke Akehurst types nowadays would consider to be lifestyle politics. It's quite closely linked to, you know, vegetarianism and pacifism and anti-imperialism. These are kind of part of the same, part and parcel of the same thing in a way that but they don't map onto today's political allegiances in the way that I think a lot of people would like. Um, you know, you can find people that seem very, very woke on a lot of stuff who will then suddenly be in favour of eugenics. You know, that's yeah. that's 1910s and 20s politics. That's what it's like, unfortunately. I mean, so thinking about, you know, the, the categories of deserving and undeserving poor, and I think that one one huge category of what's considered undeserving poor is if you're black, brown, poor and angry about it. Um, you know, in, in the book, you do talk about Tottenham, you talk about Broadwater Farm. You know, you're in Bermondsey. I'm currently uh, I, I live in Tottenham. Um, Camberwell, actually, I'm Camberwell. <laughs> I wouldn't be in Bermondsey. Sorry, not Bermondsey, sorry, uh, Bermondsey in, in, in my brain. You wouldn't be caught in. Uh, <laughs> Very different <laughs> Listen, it's like people squabbling amongst South East London, I'm like, you know, that's that's a beef that the UN doesn't get involved with. I'm like, you guys sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, thinking about Tottenham, thinking about Broadwall Farm, um, mm. because those two sets of riots in 1985 when Cynthia Jarrett was, you know, when she died in a police raid on her home and, 2011, when Mark Duggan was shot and killed by the Met, they're just so formative if you've got roots in this area. And obviously, mine are at a, more of a distance. I didn't grow up on Broadwa Broadwater Farm, though, you know, I lived in Tottenham and blah, blah, blah. My family knew, you know, Dolly Kiffin and all the rest of it. But it's not the same. Um, but I, I interviewed a, a grime MC who was born in 85, grew up on Broadwater Farm and was friends with Mark Duggan at school. You know, like mm -hmm. they, they called each other brother. And when he went to prison to visit one of his family members, one of the people that he saw there was was Winston Silcott. Right. He was there on mm -hmm. another charge and he was one of the people which who was accused of the murder of, of PC Blakelock. And thinking about the way in which the left itself sanitizes its radical history, mm. you know, we would like to, we talk about the poll tax, we talk about, you know, the match girl strike or, you know, poplar. But some riots, 1985, 2011, and also Toxteth and Hansworth and, you know, the riots which took place outside of London don't feature in that history of left-wing radicalism. And I suppose I wanted to ask you why you think that is. I mean, I, th I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on, again, on sort of which bit of the left. I think um, there are certain people on the left for whom rioting is literally the only political expression anything else is, is mere reformism. Um, but the, I think they are part of the story, and Broadwater Farm in particular, actually, because Broadwater, because whereas there's a kind of a huge quantity of kind of grievances in 1981 that you can, you know, 1981 is national, you know, that it happens everywhere. It happens, you know, where I grew up, which is not London. Um, but um, 
85 is so localized to that state and what had happened in that state, which can be summed up, I think, by the way that it was it was managed in a fairly racist way and the way that it was policed in a, I think, quite explicitly racist way. Um, and for that, it's kind of, a, uh, you know, I, I sort of use it as a way of talking about the the way that the new left and Labour Party intended to kind of do different things with the welfare state to the previous generations, exemplified by Herbert Morrison's. Um, so, you know, Broadwater Farm notoriously had this um, sort of community centre, youth club, I think, that was entirely white, a tenants association that was, I think, entirely white in an estate which was about 50-50. Um, and so you then had, you know, sorry, the Broadwater Farm Youth Association, which was set up by, what's his name? He's still around, very much a kind of a kind of big thing. On anyway, we'll get onto that later. Um, the, the, you know, the Broadwater Farm Youth Association was very much an attempt to kind of have a community group that could speak for the people of Broadwater Farm that were not spoken for by the officially recognised and entirely white kind of, you know, capital C community. Um, and obviously, lots of the things that, that 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 association wanted to raise was questions of policing, which was extraordinarily mm -hmm. aggressive on on Broadwater Farm, obviously culminating in the death of Cynthia Jarrett. And the people that were most that were kind of involved in speaking for that, um, as well as the people that were involved in the youth association, there was also very much had people in the local council who were, you know, very very much engaged. Um, so, you know, there's the famous photo that, 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 that people like to kind of show from 1987 of, you know, your newly elected, newly elected MPs where you have mm. Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Grant. And because of Grant's early death, he doesn't kind of feature in the story as much as he ought to because he doesn't have that. He doesn't, didn't become part of that kind of surreal, you know, second win that they all got in 2015. Um, mm. So yeah, he's he's but he's a huge part of it. I mean, he his sort of in, is incredibly to the point of it being quite dangerous. The point he actually had to apologise to the um, to the family of um, PC Keith Blakelock, who was killed in those riots. Um, it was explicitly yeah, got a bloody good hiding. Got a bloody good hiding. The police got a bloody good hiding. You know, he says that in a speech, and um, and I think people, frankly, enormously appreciated. They enormously appreciated the fact that the council leader at that point, um, you know, had seen a fight between the youths of Broadwater Farm and the police and had explicitly taken the side of those youths. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that was happening a lot at, at that point. Like, you know, during the, there's a wonderful anecdote about Ken Livingston um, being given the choice basically in 1981 of like going to the royal wedding or going to the front line in Brixton during the riots. And he does the latter. Um, you know, and, and, and while I don't necessarily want to have a go at him because he seems sincere in his in his way, one could contrast this with David Lammy's reaction mm. to the riots in 2011 of it being essentially criminality. Well, you and know, I think you, that shows a lot of the difference in the, the vigil, which is the thing I remember the most, oh, is that oh. David Lammy refused to attend the Mark Duggan vigil because he said that he wouldn't want to share a platform with anarchist groups. And I think whatever whatever else, you know, he said and, you know, he did talk about there being a history of policing in Tottenham and blah, blah, blah. It was fatally undermined by his being afraid of the optics of what it mm -hmm. meant to stand with his constituents in, in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and that's one of the really striking things about that generation is that they didn't really give a fuck about that. And you can trace so much of like, you know, that there's lots of people, where have these people come from? You know, that one of the councillors who was involved in, in, in Broadwater Farm and was in, in the 1980s was Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. You know, the, this, is, this, is, this history is very, very rooted in those communities. Well, so, I mean, name drop time. Bernie Grant was a really good mate of my grandma and my mum. <laughs> um, so that's what I mean by like if you're in Tottenham everybody knows everybody um, and I think when I was maybe about five took me and my sister to see the Houses of Parliament and we were spectacularly unimpressed apart from there was a thing in the car park which which he drove onto and then it rotated the car like it was a microwave and we were like that <laughs> is really amazing House of Commons nothing else was like whatever <laughs> um, I mean, another thing just just about Broadwater Farm and just to connect it a bit more to to architecture is that you know, you, as you know that in in 2011, David Cameron's going around drawing connections between growing up in a in a big modernist council estate and being more likely to riot, and the way in which in the imagination there are these so short circuits between like, do I see concrete? Okay, the people here are feral. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I think one of the things that was so frustrating about that, I mean, obviously, it's sort of various, but one of them is that those areas by then uh, were safer and, and better liked than they had ever been. Places like the Aylesbury Estate and Broadwater Farm were actually by then pretty much fine. You know, Broadwater Farm has a far lower crime rate, I think, to this day than the rest of the borough. You know, the, the waiting list to get a flat on it is enormous. Um, you know, that's, and it's an estate that was, you know, considered hard to let for a very long time. And estates like that now, you know, there's a waiting list as, as the size of a small town trying to get a flat in them. Um, you know, there really is, and, and, and so it just had bore no real relation to, to, to the reality that was happening on those places by, by, by 2011. Um, but also it said a lot about London geography. So obviously David Cameron, and George Osborne lived in North Kensington. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, 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 in fact, I remember for a time, I think they were called the, the North Kensington set or the Notting Hill set or something like that, that kind of yeah, yeah. the clique of stories. Um, and, of course, living where they did, you know, like off Portobello Road, they had in one direction Trellick Tower, mm -hmm. where, you know, when the flats go on the open market, they go for a million pounds. And in the other direction, Grenfell Tower. And yet they had no apparent idea about any of these, you know, about any of them. That the, the world they lived in was so rarefied that even though they were living next door to a a very successful council council estate around around Trellick Tower, but also be one where you know right to buy flats went for crazy money. But they just, you know, that I, I, there's a thing that always sticks with me in the aftermath of Grenfell that I got rung up by um, someone at the Evening Standard. Um, so the editor, the editor obviously being George Osborne, very interested to find that, um, that a lot of the people who lived in, in the tower and who died in the fire were, you know, architects and artists. Mm. Um, is there anything you'd like to say on that? And I was like, well, anything I'd like to say about that is how does he not know mm. that he lives around there? How would you not know that a tower block now in London will contain loads of people that do, you know, what would otherwise be considered a middle-class profession. Like, it's incredibly common. 
but they live in their own world completely. Um, I, mean, I, I, I 100% get what you mean because I remember being at uni and being at uni, I was going to uni was the, like, the first time I really interacted with people that went to fee paying schools and boarding schools and stuff like that. I'd never, never met people like that before. And I remember being in the common room and just like eavesdropping on people's conversations, which I still do. I love I love listening to things which aren't my business. And there were um, some very, very posh hipster girls from uh, the year below. And they were talking about where they were going to move um, after halls. Right. So they were making a decision and just hearing the way in which they talked about the areas that they were going to live in, you know, the areas which are historically, you know, really working class and you know very diverse and on the one hand it was like that's where you go because it's cheap and kind of cool but on the other hand it was like oh it's so sketchy around there though like <laughs> elephant and castle is properly sketchy and sketchy was their favorite word and i was like what do you think is going to happen the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you get a bad deal from your ketamine dealer and love i think that already happened but like do you know what i mean it's that thing of yeah, on the one yeah. hand like upper class quality of like defining your like coolness by your proximity to these areas but you tell a story of that area which indicates that you've had no contact with the people living there whatsoever well yeah so you could sort of imagine maybe that george osborne was sort of dimly aware of like you know the the estates around the west way but would consider them a bit stabby yeah (laughs) um i mean that's also a new labor like thing was it harriet Harman wearing the stab proof vest it's Harriet Harman, and, and that, that was sort of the what was worse about that is that she knows better. Mm-hmm. Like she you knows she's lived around here for fifty years, I think. Um, you know, has been in touch with like you know the community groups on the Aylesbury since the seventies. Like she could walk through any of those estates, you know, dressed in a t-shirt, and no one would give a fuck. They would go, "Oh, over there, that's Harriet Harman." So it was mm-hmm. purely a display to people from outside, and pe- and I expect largely to two non-londoners of like mm-hmm. i am going to the dangerous place but she knew full well it was not dangerous whereas i think you, you, the kind of girls you're describing or, or gideon osborne would probably genuinely think they are dangerous <laughs> is that is that proper sketchy <laughs> jesus christ um so i'm gonna i'm gonna move on to questions from the audience so keep them coming in um, this first one from Alicia. Um, well, pretty tall order. So if you've got the answer to this, I am. <laughs> oh, God. Um, one of these. Uh, so question from Alicia. How do we kick back against the normalization of lies, fear and the narrative of the mainstream media? Um, well, um, if I had a Patreon, I'd be now subscribed to my Patreon. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we had this thing we were doing and it ended really badly. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> if I knew I would be doing it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think we're, you know, like if I'd been asked that question a year ago, I'd have gone, right, but we're doing this and this and this and this, and this is going to be the future of it. And it's going to go there. And it didn't, it went somewhere else. Um, I suppose lots of the book is trying to order, uh, trying to argue that, um, Get yourself elected as a counsellor. Um, this this is my advice to you know to 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 to, to the people of London is you know get get in there and have some fun with it. 
because well, I think it's know, more, I, up, I kind of, more up for grabs than people make out. But you know what? I do think that, you know, my reading of the last five years is we captured the top of the Labour Party by mistake. And that was a whole middle layer, which, you know, maybe that's the way forward. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I've got a question from John. Uh, John, who says, what you say about Kensington and Chelsea Council is completely right. But how do you see the record of other more radical and progressive councils, such as Camden and Islington? Is there an unappreciated story about decent, high quality council estates in the centre of London that still exist and still provide good housing to working class Londoners? Yeah, of course. Um, however, I'm not either of those two councils particularly radical right now, I think, is is is. Is, is debatable. I'm not sure if this is the place to answer that question, but one of the things I think that, you know, that that, that kind of that kind of period of building council housing on mass that went from the the twenties until the early eighties just meant that London and inner London ended up with a huge quantity of genuinely affordable housing that a lot of cities that didn't do that that didn't have that program. Um, and didn't get bombed in the particular places that London got bombed. Um, that don't have this. You don't have this in Paris. You know, that most, you know, you, you don't get like the equivalent of, um, you know, Labrick Grove having a load of council estates in it in, 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 mm. in Paris. It's just not there. You know, that the, obviously there are working class areas of, of, of Paris proper, but overwhelmingly the Paris working class lives in places that aren't officially Paris, like Saint mm. Denis and so forth. So, you know that 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 legacy has has you know even even despite things like right to buy you know it has continued it has provided a lifeline for hundreds of thousands of people. As to what's happening now, I mean the thing I liked about Islington Council stuff that they've done with housing is they've just renovated a load of stuff, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the time renovating a load of stuff rather than trying to do something more complicated is a good idea. That a lot of councils I mean you know. Croydon, which has just gone bankrupt, being a case in point, have tried to kind of build these sort of entrepreneurial states where they will, you know, set up their own kind of building companies and kind of, you know, get involved in the property market and build a bit of council housing on the side and so forth. And that's really, really dangerous. Like, I mean, you can, a lot of what Croydon did actually was very good. They built a lot of good housing um, in the last 10 years. But if you're going to do that by playing the market, the market will beat you. And, you know, this is very much the lesson of Ken Livingston's second incarnation as mayor as well, is that, you know, you cannot do these things through the market. And Camden at the moment are very much trying to do that through the market. There's a 
phrase that one of their councillors has said about their recent housing, which is very good housing in and of itself, is that um, it's their North Sea oil strategy. So they can sell that incredibly expensive London housing um, and sell this incredibly expensive land and then on the side build a load of council housing. And it's like, well, by the fact that you're then being able to, you know, that people rentals can charge so much in the rest of Camden, you're going to put more people on the waiting list, more people in need of housing, which means that you're going to need to be building more housing, which means even more resources, which means even more land sales. I mean, it's just, you know, like an A-level economic student could tell you it's a bit dodgy. But it's an ideological marriage to thinking that the market will come up with a solution to I mean, I, the public provision. It is, but I think there's also a lot of it as councillors trying to go, well, what can we actually do? What, can, what, what, what in this situation are we able to do? And a lot of kind of councils from those that are kind of broadly on the left to those that are not, thought they could do is kind of, you know, set up these sort of semi-independent companies to build housing and that, they're, you know, they then, you know, have investment from venture capitalists and so on. And that they usually are, that's sort of, sort of a way of moving on from the new Labour idea, which was that council housing was shit and should be destroyed, which was very much the idea. They will have no revisionism on. They despised council housing. Um, but, you know, that there was an idea of like, oh, we should do it, but you couldn't redo really it in the old way because the government would crush you. And actually, Theresa May like, liberalised the law on this a little bit, so it's not quite as difficult as it used to be. But anyway. So critical and qualified solidarity for Comrade May. Um, I never so thought I'd say it. <laughs> well, that's going to be uh, there's going to be some angry tweets about that on left to right. So I've got a, a question from Nacho. Uh, as the socio-cultural values of England and London keep drifting further and further apart, do you see some kind of independence movement gaining force in the near future? Um, no, and I think it's important to guard against that. I think there was a lot of um, there was a lot of that after the referendum of kind of you know. We're going like, yeah, we should totally be independent. I mean, oh god, these awful people. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, that that's, yeah, you know, I think what's actually happening, and it's writ large in London, but what's actually happening is urban Britain, well, urban England, urban Wales, actually, come to think of it, and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, and there's other places people aren't 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 in trouble because they are, but it's a different kind of trouble. Um, and I think that, you know, the politics of London do closely resemble the politics currently of the city of Manchester, of Bristol, of Leeds, of Birmingham, um, Sheffield. You know, the, the, the actual, and, and those are the places where, incidentally, you know, the vote, you know, was was pretty much OK, you know, a year ago. Those are the places that were least that were least affected. Um, so. It's sort of urban-suburban, I think. I wouldn't even say urban towns versus cities. I think that's wrong. I think a lot of places that are claimed to be towns, such as Dudley and Wigan, are actually suburbs of Birmingham and Manchester. And if they were in London, they would be regarded as such. I mean, do you but think that, that that's, you know, the problem sorry. isn't too much London centrism. The problem is not enough London centrism. So everyone's just got to make their peace with the fact that you're a town you're a borough of your nearest city. So Wigan, get over it. You're a borough of Manchester, the way Croydon is of London. And if we could accept Croydon, and I did so with a heavy heart <laughs> as a North Londoner, I accepted Croydon, then Wigan can accept their part of Manchester. 
And that's where the kind of things like infrastructure come in. Like I'm very kind of like I get quite tetchy about people going, oh, Londoners are so privileged. But one of the places in which London genuinely is privileged is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that that not being from London, when I hear Londoners talk about London transport being bad or unreliable, I am a little bit like, <clears throat> have you ever left the M25? <laughs> you know, that that every other big city in the country, pretty much without exception, has transport that is so much worse than London, it's outrageous. You know, there's a couple of places where it's all right, Nottingham is bad. Um, but most, it's really appalling. And places that are like Birmingham and Leeds that are really quite big cities have transport that would that would shame Watford, um, you know, and, and that's that's the real issue. And I think that's also one reason why those places then don't see themselves, why Dudley doesn't see itself as being what it obviously is, which is, you know, the, the Sutton of Birmingham, um, but instead sees itself as being a town. It's because, well, it's really fucking hard to get to Birmingham. Mm. Um, so I think that that's definitely part of it. You know, the, the, the fact that, like, when Northern Rail got its, like, swish new trains, they were discarded Thameslink trains. Mm. They discarded for the genuinely quite swish new Thameslink trains that London has. So that's a, a fairly mean, obvious example. Big sister with the hand-me-down gums, you know? Exactly, um, exactly. I, I, I can but, understand what... Yeah, but what people miss, I think, is that the first victims of that system are usually Londoners, you know, in the rent that they have to pay and the hours they have to work. Um, you know, in the homelessness that you you see, and in in the fact that you know it's in London where the tower blocks are burning down. Mm. I mean, so this is a question from Lawcan, which is um, if comrades wanted to consciously build a new red municipalism in their city, how should they start? What would be their program and organisational base? Ooh, um, I think probably. You'd want some combination of kind of housing activism and workplace activism and the fact that you can still just about, before they expel us all, use the Labour Party to advance those those things. So I was talking to a, a comrade in Bristol not long ago, and he was talking about the way that, you know, the fact that many councillors there are members of ACORN um, and that they would turn up to ACORN action. And the fact that Paul Smith, the, the recently sadly resigned director of housing in, in Bristol, had been building a lot of very high quality council housing. Mm. And so you had this kind of like dual layer thing of like that the council would be involved in activism on one level and it would be involved in you know building new housing. And, you know, that's kind of what, what, what you want, I think, is some kind of thing where you can kind of bridge the kind of activist layer and the kind of the local state doing state things like building stuff. Um, and that, that's the ideal for me, really. And I think it's no accident there that the mayor of Bristol, who's not particularly left wing, came out from day one in support of chucking the Colston statue in the in the harbour. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was didn't have an eye to what the Times got to think about this, like certain other mayors might, but immediately was like, you know, these are my people and I am supporting them. Mm-hmm. They should have been done decades ago. And I mean, I think you see some individuals, I mean, you know, they're just people I know personally who, who are doing that as that kind of campaigning councillor role. But it's very much still individuals and there's not yet a political vehicle for institutionalising that process of activist into councillor. No, there isn't. And, and I think that was a real failure in the five years that we were accidentally and still in, but, you know, accidentally in a more prominent role 
Um, and Labour Party. And that, I think, is um, there was such focus on, like, defend the leadership, defend the leadership, defend Jeremy, uh, win the next election, you know, get through the next hurdle, that there was this kind of huge layer in the middle that just wasn't thought about. So there was, like, you know, the kind of us as the kind of foot soldiers of Jeremy and then Jeremy at the top who we would occasionally have to kind of go in to save him from things. And the fact that, like, the Labour Party controls most local authorities in the country just didn't feature. Um, probably the nearest it came to being, like, a real battle was Haringey. Mm. And the record of Haringey is mixed. I, mean, I don't think it's entirely bad, but it's certainly mixed. But that was the nearest it ever came to, like, right, let's, let's take a council over. <laughs> and even then, there were then problems with the first momentum run council, so-called, being... You know, they would argue hands being tied by aspects of deals that had already been made and, you know, things like the Latin village, the the market, which is actually just down the road from me, being shut down and traders moved on. Um, I mean, the thing that they stopped, the Haringey development vehicle, was vastly worse than than anything that they're, they're planning yeah. now. It would have been apocalyptic. But um, I think that just showed how massively out of their, out of their depth they were because there had been no real training. There had been no kind of like, right, this is how the system works. This is how officers work. This is how property developers work. This is how the mayoralty works. You know, this is how, and, and, and things like the, the, the people like Corbyn and McDonald and Abbott came out of in the 80s, like London Labour Briefing, they would tell you things like that. And we didn't, I think partly because people were just so terrified of being expelled or looking disloyal, that there was no real kind of sense of just like educating people about what the machine is and how it works. So I think, I, I think it was naivety rather than, anything else on Haringey's part I think I think people would be happy with that assessment um I've got one generous. Uh, it's very generous very kind that's the kind of gender politics for you um <laughs> so I've got uh one last question um so we're coming towards the end of our evening thank you everybody for joining us tonight last question is from Conrad uh what opportunities for housing does community wealth building offer Brackets, shout out to North Ayrshire as well as Preston. <laughs> and I was like, what's he done? But no, Preston. 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 Um, North Ayrshire, by me. Um, so, uh, you know what? I don't actually, like, one of the things that, that's kind of interesting about community wealth building that's been happening in places like Preston and Salford and so on is that they've generally been about places where the local economy is already in quite big trouble. Particularly Preston, actually, Salford has a, has a boom, has had a boom of sorts. Um, but the, so the left kind of got to run Preston because no one else had any ideas about what the hell you do at Preston. Like the right had run it for donkey's years. And, you know, when the financial crash happened and money pulled out of the city, there were literally no plans, no ideas. And so it was, you know, like the old Benites and, and the young Benites in the case of Matthew Brown were allowed to kind of, to, to, to do their thing. And they've done it enormously successfully, and I, I, I salute it. But doing that in a place of a housing crisis is a whole other story. Mm. And doing that in a place where, like, land costs a shit ton of money and where developers are absolutely, you know, kind of swooping around every small site is very, very different. And the pressures are very, very different. So I think the first principle of it that would be useful in looking at housing there's always this idea that, that, that the thing that I like about the Preston model is it looks at, looks at what's happening 
what's actually happening and goes, what here works? Mm -hmm. So in the case of Preston, it looked at the bus station, it looked at the market, and it looked at the university and it looked at the hospital and went, this is the, this is Preston's economy. Like it's these things which currently, if you took a, a policy wonk to, they'd look at it and go, oh God, that's horrible. You know, I remember Preston Market 10 years ago. It was grim. You know, the bus station, you know, was incredibly dilapidated, although it's one of the best buildings in the country. Um, whereas now they're in wonderful shape. And that's partly because there's been a kind of like what what here is already thriving or already could thrive if it was given some encouragement and some resources. And that could then be the basis that we build the economy on. And what a Labour what a Labour councillor in, 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 in London would necessarily, if they were to find somewhere like that, they would find it in the Latin village, they would find it in the Elephant Castle, and they would find it in those little enclaves that still survived in Rye Lane, you know, in, in like the small enclaves that survived in London of of, of working class life and of and of, of the economies that, that that come along with that. And because of the enormous amount of money you can get from selling land and property in London, that's generally not what councils have done. They've still seen those things as a threat rather than the first step. And I think you could see that, you could apply that insight to housing by looking at, you know, things that were unique, kind of constantly demonized like the Aylesbury Estate or the broad, or Broadwater Farm and going like, how does this work? What are the things that actually make this work? Um, what do people in here want? And what would they do if they had the resources? And and that's that's kind of how that, that, that model in theory works. And I think that could be very well used in London if they could resist the temptation to speculate on their land all the time. Uh, I think this seems like a really good place to wrap up. It's got uh, <laughs> the right notes of optimism and pessimism in there. Um, <laughs> that, my friend, is true centrism. Um, <laughs> there was I thinking of dialectics. <laughs> oh, no, I was just thinking, like, oh, yeah, political ambivalence. Let's go. Um, but, Owen, thank you so much for thank you I mean, one thank you so much for writing a book in defense of london that makes me very happy on a personal <laughs> narrow deep level i'm going to be going around anyone's like you know and and you get that you get that with lefties in manchester or liverpool and they think they're all that and I'm gonna be like, look look at this <laughs> sure we produced david cameron and, and gideon osborne but we have this too <laughs> Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining thank us. You. And I do definitely encourage um, everyone to get a copy of the book. I thought it was brilliant, and I'm not just saying that. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.